Welcome to the first episode of the Schmearcast. This has been long gestating. Basically, from the moment I started the Schmear Hunter Substack, many of you were asking for a podcast. More bluntly, some of you said, yeah, it's great and all, but I don't want to read. Well, point taken, even if we're now a few months on. The Schmearcast will be much like the Substack and more. More casual, more conversations, more humor, more personality, all with the same high level of discerning analysis. The hype will be unpacked and the unknown will be elevated with expert guests, fun segments, and always a sense of enthusiasm and joy. What better way to start episode one than counting down my favorite films of the year 2023? In the year of AI, my favorite films of the year were also united by a sense of artificiality. I responded most to slippery performances, surrealist worlds, formalist camera work, and grandiosity of vision. 2023's best films profoundly blended the personal with the playful. That's not to say it was all fun and games. A lot of my favorites are miserable and bleak, but all of them have a profound sense of exploration, a restless searching quality that seemed to be a prerequisite for my choices this year. I promise there's some fun movies here too, but they display an extreme sense of subversion, sometimes sly, sometimes overt. 2023 seemed to be the year when movies heard that they were a dying art and said, oh yeah, watch this. The best films pulsed with an electricity that if you reached out to touch, you'd get shocked out of morbidity too. Before we dig in, a quick note. There is no Schmear Hunter without all of you fabulous, intelligent participants. Nothing, and I mean nothing, gives me more joy than engaging and conversing with you. When I hear you watch Blue Eye Samurai or Passages or what have you off of my recommendation, or you tell me my post helped you see Oppenheimer in a new way, it makes me brim with pride, and I can't even express my gratitude enough for that feeling. I really tried my best here by sourcing all of your favorite movies of 2023. The responses were inspired and manifold, and I'm thrilled to include them here. Thank you for being an amazing reader. And now, an amazing listener too. Here's to a great year of movies and an even better 2024 ahead. So I want to start off with my list of shame. These are the movies I did not get to in 2023. And I don't feel great about it. I wish I could have seen these movies, but I didn't. Pacifiction, All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt. La Quimera, Los Delincuentes, The Teacher's Lounge, A Thousand and One, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, When Evil Lurks, Wonka, Super Mario Brothers, Elemental, Knock at the Cabin, Nimona, Thanksgiving, Evil Dead Rise, and Bo is Afraid. So if you don't hear these movies mentioned in my list, I did not catch them, and if you don't hear your favorite movie in my list. It's probably because it just wasn't my favorite movie. And that's okay. But what's not okay is probably the film I'm most upset that I did not get a chance to see. And I had some opportunities, but the release date kind of screwed me. I will let Bryant Palmer introduce this next one. 
Hey, Schmear Hunters, my name is Bryant, longtime listener, first-time caller from beautiful Denver, Colorado, and my favorite movie of 2023 is All of Us Strangers, directed by Andrew Hay, featuring some incredible performances by a quartet of actors I'm sure you'll recognize. I love this movie. All of Us Strangers is a, a powerful meditation on regret and loss and love. And one of the things I like about it the most is that it inspires the viewer to think about a really powerful question, which is, what would you say to someone you've lost if you've had the opportunity to speak with them again? I thought about that question a lot as I was watching this movie, and I've been thinking about it even more ever since. I think another thing about this movie that's really special is that you never really understand what is purely real, what's purely imagination, and how the story that plays out falls into those categories in a way that I think was really riveting and interesting and moody and beautiful and haunting. And I have a feeling that I'm going to be thinking about this movie for a really long time, and I kind of wish everybody I knew would watch it so that we could all talk about it together. Beautifully said, Brian, and I agree. I can't wait to see it and discuss it with all of you, too. One more vote here for all of us strangers. Let's listen. Hello, Schmear Hunter. Fiona Kelly here, friend of the podcast. Okay, so in what was a truly great year for movies, I would have to say that All of Us Strangers stuck out the most to me. I thought Haig's blurry reality really, really entranced me, and he created such a cozy and inviting world, only to then absolutely rip my heart out, leaving me super suspended in grief. I hadn't been that moved by something in a long time, and I walked out of that screening feeling like I had just been punched in the gut. The ending did lose me a bit, but I think that the larger explorations of nostalgia left this kind of lingering melancholy that days later I was still thinking about. Overall, it was a heavy but extremely worthwhile watch this year, and there really wasn't a dry eye in the house. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing your platform with us, Schmear, and here's to much more in 2024. Okay, that's two very smart people telling me that I really need to see All of Us Strangers, which will be one of my first orders of business in 2024, I promise, and whenever I get the chance. Let's stay in London for this next favorite movie of the year from a fellow reader. Hi, Shmir Hunter. This is Katie Cohen reporting live from London, which is actually the perfect place to be for my favorite film of the year, which is Rye Lane. Rye Lane was just a really fun movie. I really enjoyed it. It's like a colorful tour all throughout South London. You really feel like immersed in the characters and the city that they live in and what's going on in their relationships past and present. And it's just a fun movie. It feels like you're watching a play. There's like different tropes. They break the fourth wall. It's just like very exciting, very fast paced. Even though the entire movie only takes course over one day, it does feel like you're getting a look into these people's lives over the course of the last year or so. And yeah, it just was like a really fun love letter to South London. I think it kind of captured that part of the city really well. And it was truly like anything else I watched this year. And I kind of think rom-coms are back, baby. Thank you, Katie, for a great choice. Rye Lane is certainly a very sweet movie. Doesn't make my top list, but I totally see why it is a delightful joy. 
Also, it's important to note it clocks in at 82 minutes. So if you really do want something short and sweet, this fits the bill. It's the first film from Rain Allen Miller, and she is able to make this really visually pop with just a small budget of around a million and a half dollars. So expect her to get some more money to make something even bigger and explore a little deeper. And I really look forward to following her career. Next up, we have a film that is kind of catching fire right now. It got added to Prime Video after its pretty controversial and mixed release. And it seems like it is taking the entire world, or at least the Gen Z world, by storm. And that is Emerald Fennel's Saltburn. Hey, Shmir, it's Fossa, and I wanted to share with you a film that I saw this season that I thought was really, really good and unexpected. I think everyone knows how good Emerald Fennel really is as a director and how much of a point of view that she has, but this particular film, Saltburn, really surprised me, especially after Promising Young Woman. I thought that it also had such a strong point of view and strong themes about greed and classism, but also about sexuality and what that looks like and how it just it all intersects with almost everything. And so I just really appreciated this film and it was such a surprise and I didn't know there was going to be so much murder, <laughs> but um, it was great. And I really thought that this was high on my list for the films and television shows of 2023. So yeah, thanks. I wanted to share that. Thank you, Fasa, for that great recommendation. Saltburn, for me, kind of falls apart in the third act when some characters decisions get recontextualized in a way that kind of scuttles the whole movie but up until that point i was having a hella a lot of fun and i can totally understand why it's resonating with people but the issues remain at least for me and here's another film that i didn't feel very deeply maybe i am a sad human being because a lot of you love this movie. I'm seeing it on lots of lists. It does not make my own, but the very smart David Kagan is here to introduce it. Schmear Baby, this is David calling from LA. Um, a lot of unique and special movies from this year, but the one that I really can't get out of my head is Past Lives. The characters are so richly detailed. The cinematography and sets are so thoughtful in establishing settings across an over 20-year timeline and multiple countries. And But what I really can't get over is the dialogue towards the end of the movie between the two lovers over the last couple scenes. And I don't want to ruin it for any of the dear listeners who haven't seen it yet, but it's truly unforgettable. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. But just a beautiful and captivating romance throughout. I can't recommend it enough. Thank you, David. Great choice there. Everyone's hooting and hollering at me for not having past lives amongst my favorite films of the year. And to that, I say, I'm sorry, I guess. I saw this back in the spring when it came out and I liked it, but it didn't have much emotional resonance or impact on me. And then when the hype train left the station and everyone started seeing it and loving it, I still felt 
how I felt. So got to stick to my guns there. But here's an honorable mention for me, a film that I really liked and really connected with. So glad to see it getting a sequel, which I hope will be as scary and exciting as the first film felt. So here to introduce it is Annabelle Getz. What's up, Schmier? It's Annabelle Getz here from New York, New York. What a great year for movies. So many favorites, but I need to go with Talk to Me. I live and die for this movie. Fucking Danny and Michael Philippou. Amazing. I get visions of this movie when I go to sleep. They perfectly capture those moments when you're half asleep and you see a shadow across your room. It's not just a sweater on a chair. It's actually a fucking demon hiding in the shadows waiting to come out and suck on your toes. The level of suspense, enjoyment, curiosity, and emotion from minute one, every single second of this movie just reminds you why people come to the movies, why they see it in a communal experience on the big screen. The next film is an honorable mention for me. I have it ranked at 31, but introducing it is a brilliant director and writer in her own right, who I met at the premiere of this movie at the Hamptons Film Festival. I will let her take it away and explain why this is her favorite movie of the year. Hey, Schmier. It's Yara Timmy Bu here from London, England. 2023 has been an incredible year for film. I've left the theatre many times and said, hey, that's my new favourite film. But nothing, and absolutely nothing, I promise you, tops American Fiction by Cord Jefferson. Not only is this a film by a first-time filmmaker, but it is just so clever and thoughtful and funny without being pretentious and alienating people. I was just so, so, so enamoured by the performances of these like top cast members. I mean, Hollywood's finest were in it, but I was so moved and I felt so much joy and so much pain going through what the characters were going through. I also felt like it just didn't take itself too seriously at all, especially as it did. It was satirizing our industry. I tell every single person about this film. I've watched it twice now and I know on the third watch, it's going to be even more enjoyable. Shout out to Cole Jefferson for American Fiction. The next film is a movie that filled a lot of you with joy. It certainly made me feel happy in a way that movies like School of Rock and Wet Hot American Summer have done in the past. I think this is a cult classic in the making, and I have Emily Bice here to introduce it. Hey, Schmier. This is Emily from Brooklyn slash New York. Big fan of Schmier Hunter. Love the Substack. Can't wait to see what's in store for the new year. One of my favorite movies of the year was Theater Camp. It felt like going home, partly because I grew up going to the summer camp that it's based on. And it was really special to see that experience and that really weird childhood played out on the big screen. I thought a lot of movies this year offered joy, which is something we really needed. Just complete, unadulterated fun and nostalgia and a celebration of all that's weird and wonderful. That's what Theater Camp did for me, and I hope it did that for a lot of other people. Can't wait to see what's next for Schmier Hunter. Happy New Year. Thank you, Emily. Now we're really getting into my serious honorable mentions. I ranked 50 films this year, and these were the ones that just missed 
my top 20. At 27, I have a film that came out in the spring that I'm glad that at least some people are talking about now. I think it shouldn't be missed. And here's Brock DeCoin to tell you why. Hey, Shmir, Brock here. Wanted to tell you about a film called Blackberry that I watched and was one of my favorites of 2023. I think when you compare it to a movie like The Social Network, it's a very tragic course of watching a company reach its peak when it was you know, the dominant cell phone maker in the market to when it was overtaken by the iPhone because of the, the way that Apple had seen where technology was headed. And I think that the most poignant scene in the film is when the hard-charging CEO of BlackBerry and the developers that he was beginning to clash with because he didn't make an effort to understand them stops when Steve Jobs is giving the keynote to introduce the iPhone and he says, why would anybody care about a touchscreen on a phone? And proceeds to try to sell BlackBerry in different markets with only the addition of a clickable trackpad. And I think when you think about juxtaposing that movie against The Social Network, two companies, both once great, one still around and one now still there, but pivoted to not making cell phones, but making hardware. It's a very interesting moment when you think about what role the iPhone has played in our culture, the spreading of information and the way that people engage and interact with content. So fascinating movie. Check it out. Thanks. Thanks, Brock. Totally agree ton of parallels between BlackBerry and social network. And I think the difference here is that BlackBerry has a scrappy underdog feeling. And that's because we know the result, the BlackBerry lost. And so that type of irony makes the film extra rich and extra funny. Glenn Howerton playing Jim Balsilli is just on fire in this movie. And I hope he gets some supporting actor recognition he probably won't but i think that this performance from him is just astounding and hysterical and nearly worth the price of admission just for that here's another movie that all of you love maybe i'm a bit of a heartless bastard that it's missing my cut but hayden zelson's here to tell you why it's one of his favorite movies of the year hey Shmir hunter hayden here just got to say, been a great year for the Schmear. Really happy to be here for the first Schmear cast. Movie that spoke most to me was probably The Holdovers. I think that the dynamic between Paul Giamatti and Dominic Sessa really, really rang true to me. I thought that the story was beautiful. I thought the setting was really fantastic. It was a great Christmas movie. It was a great story of a, a mentor. And Alexander Payne knocked it out of the park for this one. I went to a New England boarding school. I don't think I had quite a difficult time like Dominic Sessa's character did, but there was still just a like a kernel of truth to everything that he did and said. So I love it. I'm going to be rewatching it. Merry Christmas and uh, have a happy new year. Thank you, Hayden, for that. Yeah, the holdovers. You can hear the trepidation in my voice. I understand this is beloved. And I think the way that it reaches for that status is a little bit cloying. I think it's a tiny bit of a nostalgia bomb in really great ways and maybe not so great ways in that it feels trapped in amber and the look of it and the soundtrack of it tells you it's the early 1970s but it doesn't quite have a vitality and urgency of feeling and no of course not all movies need that 
or even should have that. But I felt my heartstrings being tugged a little bit. And if you allow that type of manipulation, the holdovers is quite special and delightful. But if your guard's up a little bit, you may feel, eh, you know, this is a little trying too hard. But that's me. Holdovers for me came in at 28. At 24, I want to talk about Fallen Leaves. This is the new film from Aki Kurismaki. It is the driest rom-com you'll ever see. Here's another great film that is just 80-ish minutes in length. Comes from Finland. Has a very cold and offbeat style, but it is very stylish. It's about two people in their, I'd say their 30s, early 40s, that are living some pretty tough lives in the present day. And they meet at a karaoke bar, exchange numbers, but then the guy loses the girl's number. And the movie is about them trying to reconnect most of the time. You get this feeling that if they can find each other, the problems of the world will be fixed. Wars will end, poverty will end because that is how builds up this feels. And what this movie does really beautifully is inject some grand romanticism into very small lives. And that discrepancy ends up being really inspiring. The movie is funny. It feels out of place, out of time in the ways that a David Lynch or Wes Anderson movie can sometimes feel. And I just had a smile plastered on my face the majority of this movie and it's very hard to forget so that's fallen leaves coming in at 24 for me at number 23 we have a movie that took me by surprise it took the box office by surprise it took critics by surprise that is Takashi Yamazaki's Godzilla Minus One. Yamazaki directed, wrote, and did the visual effects for this movie. It's important to note that this was produced and distributed by Toho, the OG Japanese studio responsible for the, the older Godzilla films. This came out on December 1st, made $78 million worldwide against a $15 million budget. And those are just the facts and figures. I think that this really resonated because of how it made people feel. More than a monster movie, Godzilla Minus One is a war drama sharing similarities to Studio Ghibli's Grave of the Fireflies or even a Terrence Malick movie like The Thin Red Line, which is insane to think about when you consider our monster movies, the same franchise taking place over at Warner Brothers with Kong Skull Island or Godzilla vs. Kong or this new Apple show Monarch, The Legacy of Monsters. These, these movies are asinine compared to this. This has a story, it has a hero, it has stakes, it has a very classical story structure and approach that is earnest and winning and very thought-provoking. I mean, I sat there throughout Godzilla Minus One not just enjoying the film for its thrills, and there are many thrills, but this really had me wondering and questioning 
about what Japan's relationship to Godzilla is. In this movie, he is this destructive atomic force. We understand that he is a stand-in and allegory for nuclear destruction and war in Japan in World War II. But how does that explain how the Japanese people also kind of love Godzilla, fear Godzilla? It's these really thorny, tricky questions that the movie brings up. And for me, the fact that I was even caring or wondering about that in a monster movie just goes to tell you how thoughtful this movie is and what large themes and ideas it's going after. And that is downright inspiring from a blockbuster and made me wish for the old days of blockbusters when they did have all of those things on their minds. So even though this is not longer in theaters, really seek this out, turn up the volume and sit back and enjoy, be scared and be thrilled by Godzilla minus one. Hola, Shmir. Manolo here from Mexico. This time, I will go for Passages, which is a very contemporary and raw story. Sax reflects an erotic, sad, but real atmosphere where Thomas is reeling to himself. Thomas is a gay man in a relationship and starts a heterosexual relationship with a woman, and this brings along drama upon drama. Oh, and a constant game where we don't know if he allows himself to feel or just take advantage of Martin and Agatha's vulnerability. For me, this film feels like a constant questioning of whether he loves Martin, loves Agathe, or is using his sexiness to feel wanted. What I would like to applaud Thomas for, without getting into his mistakes, is that he allows himself to feel, even though he walks a very thin line between freedom and narcissism. If I had to describe Sages in one word, it would be somewhere between erotism or accurate customs. This last one only applies to Thomas. Well, I'm looking forward to see what Sachs is bringing us next. See you next time, Shmir. Thank you, Manolo. This pick coming in all the way from Mexico City. I have passages at 22. This is Iris Sachs' European dramedy about a very toxic love triangle. It stars Franz Rogowski, Ben Wishaw, Adele, Exarchopoulos. And I really haven't been able to forget about this movie since I saw it over the summer. Rogowski's character, Tomas, is just such an unforgettable person, and not in such a good way. He is this blustery tornado of a narcissist, but he's also so magnetic and attractive with one of those people able to live with all id, no ego, just doing whatever the hell they want, kind of getting away with whatever the hell they want. And I saw this at Landmark Theater where Sachs did a Q&A after and he said that he was kind of inspired and put off by Donald Trump and the way that he kind of can do he was doing whatever the hell he wanted in his time with little ramification and there are those people in life and I have to hand it to Sachs for putting one of those characters on screen and Rogowski like I said is just so magnetic and you can't look away from him he makes all of these awful decisions that are hurting people so badly and yet 
there's still that feeling, can I change him? What if I can make it work? What if I do take him back? And all these characters are asking that of him and falling into exactly the toxic trap that he doesn't even know that he is springing for them as he just keeps going. And the costuming is really special in this movie. The energy is just spiky in a way that an American film wouldn't be. I highly recommend Passages. Hey, Schmer Hunter. This is Teddy. I thought 2023 was a so-so year for movies, and I'm excited for 2024. But one movie that stood out to me was How to Blow Up a Pipeline. The film came out at the Toronto Film Festival last fall and was released by Neon this April. And it kind of came without a bang and left without a whimper. But if you get a chance to check it out on Hulu or rent it on Amazon, this movie will grip you and make you think. We've had a good run of TV and movies that make fun of the rich, like Succession and White Lotus or Parasite, that appeals to a kind of consumer socialism. Pipeline turns that all on its head by seriously advocating you do something about it, violently if necessary. I don't necessarily agree with the film's message, but it is bold and provocative, and unlike a lot of movies that pretend to be edgy but are actually safe corporate products, Pipeline truly deserves to be called a dangerous film. So maybe watch it, or maybe don't. Thanks. You can find me on Letterboxd at T. Kim, and I'm looking forward to some great movies in 2024. Thank you, Teddy, for that incredible recommendation. Teddy actually got me on Substack originally with his own Substack, First Derivative. Highly recommend it. Check that out. How to Blow Up a Pipeline just misses my top 20. It comes in at number 21. I love this movie. I loved it when it came out in the spring when I felt like a crazy person telling everyone, go check this out. Pay attention to this movie. It is so electric, like a stick of dynamite. It comes from Daniel Goldhaber, and it's about a crew of young environmental activists, you guessed it, trying to blow up a pipeline. A really fantastic young cast that has great chemistry with each other. And when this movie came out, I just remember Daniel Goldhaber making a letterbox list, listing his biggest influences on the movie. And he had movies here like Ocean's Eleven, The Battle of Algiers, Reservoir Dogs, Army of Shadows, Thief. I mean, these are my favorite movies. And I called bullshit and I was just thinking to myself, get over yourself. No way your movie reaches the peaks and pinnacles of these all-timers. And I got to say, after you see the movie, you do see all that influence here, which is so exciting and commendable. And even if you're not going to be the next Battle of Algiers, if you're trying to even approximate some of that, you're going to make a great movie. And that's exactly what Daniel Goldhaber did. I think if I have any note, it just feels a little small and slight. But maybe that's how you're supposed to feel. This is not some sweeping epic, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It feels dirty, nasty, short, and very much alive and... I can't wait to see what Daniel Goldhaber does next. Please go see this movie if any of that sounds good to you. And if it doesn't, and if that topic seems a little too thorny or upsetting or politically charged, maybe run into the skid and enjoy the tricky politics and the intense extremism of the movie. I certainly did. 
All right, let's get into business. I'm kicking off my top 20 films of the year with number 20. That's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. This came out back in April to little fanfare and reception, which is a mistake because this film is beautiful. It's graceful. It balances seriousness and humor so well. It's based on the 1970 Judy Bloom book that is a YA hallmark. Here, it stars Abby Ryder Fortson as the title character. Rachel McAdams plays her mother. Benny Safdie is her dad. Kathy Bates is her grandma. And what this film does beautifully is it cares just as much about Margaret's life and development as it does the people around her, like her parents. And here, McAdams really shines as per usual. Freeman Craig, the director, is a disciple of James L. Brooks. He is a producer here. If you don't know Brooks, you definitely know his work, The Simpsons, Terms of Endearment, broadcast news, as good as it gets. He really is a master of that perfect, graceful balance, and his fingerprints are all over this. That is in no way to discredit how light and buoyant Kelly Freeman Craig makes this feel. It's her script, it's her direction, and she knocks it out of the park. I want to steal a line from my friend and fellow reader, Kelvin Reed, who said that this is the exact kind of movie when the substitute teacher is teaching and they wheel out the VCR player and you see the big television coming into the classroom. This is what gets turned on to teach some really valuable lessons, but do it in a way with humor and lightness and without didacticism. And it's the perfect movie you want to see on a day like that. So that's my number 20. That was my number 20 favorite film of the year. Now we're on to number 19. This is a movie that's been catching some flack since it was released in the past couple weeks, which I think is unfair and unwarranted. I have Arielle Urvater here to share why it's one of her favorite films of the year. Hello, Schmear Hunter community. This is Arielle. I wanted to talk about a film that has really stuck with me in 2023. 2023 was a great year for movies in general. Gave me a lot of hope where there wasn't as much prior to. And there's so many amazing films to pick. But I think so far my favorite movie of 2023 was Maestro with Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan. And that is because of the acting that was done by both of them. I think career best performances for both. I was not super familiar with Leonard Bernstein's history, his personal life, but I think that the emotions that I felt while watching the movie and have continued to feel when I think back on the movie and specific scenes, the way that there are those scenes that'll stick with you kind of for life. Like there's this one scene in Million Dollar Baby that is so powerful that I still think about it 10 years later. And then there's a similar scene, a couple actually, in Maestro that will stick with me for many, many years to come. And it'll be a movie I return to over and over again to understand the psyches of Lenny and Felicia and to understand kind of the complexities of being famous and those high highs and those low lows. I think the emotional depth of both characters played by their incredible actors was really amazing to see. I haven't seen performances like that in many, many years. And I think specifically with Lenny, like it wasn't just this black or white, happy or sad. There were moments where I could feel jubilation and ecstasy. And then the nuance of being a person of just this complacency that's a little, a little scary. And I think the low lows and then 
those moments of high highs being reflected through the eyes of Felicia, who had an incredible career ahead of her. And there wasn't really room for both of them and watching that recognition in both of them and how that played out in their relationship and then how they treated others was just incredible to see. I highly recommend this movie and major props to Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan, who I think were sensational. Thank you, Ariel. Maestro's my number 19 favorite film of the year. I really fell for this film. I was swept up by it. It's a very abstract and expressionistic version of a biopic. It isn't about the facts and figures. And I think that that choice kind of riled people up or is upsetting people. I've seen this movie taking a ton of flack now on Twitter. I think that's a little unfair. I saw this in a theater, big and loud. It's how the movie's supposed to be seen. You really want to hear Leonard Bernstein's amazing score pulsing through the whole movie. And you don't want the spell of concentration and magic to be broken. And now that this film is on Netflix, I can potentially see people pausing it, stopping and starting it, checking their phone. These are all activities that, especially for this film, are going to do it a disservice. Bradley Cooper directs the hell out of this. I think it looks amazing. I think his performance is very good, even though it starts off a little shaky. I think he really inhabits the role and becomes Leonard Bernstein. And this is not a biopic that holds your hand. I appreciate that. You kind of need to keep up and stick with it. And if you give yourself to this movie, Maestro, it gives a lot back to you. So I think it's a little maligned unfairly. And I think really Bradley Cooper did a great job subverting what we think a biopic should be with this film. Hey Shmir, it's Elvir. I'm a filmmaker and graduate student at USC. And one of my top films this year was Monster by Hirokazu Koreeda, which I saw at the Cannes Film Festival in May. It's a story of a mother who notices changes in her son's behavior and confronts his teacher about it. It's told in Rashomon style. You get the same story from different perspective. So it's really about how you can never know the whole story from one point of view. And it shows the true power of cinema in manipulating an audience. It also has a wonderful score by Ryuchi Sakamoto. It's the last one before his death this year. And the film overall is a really tender look at boyhood. And it's cruel and it's beautiful. And I recommend it highly to everyone. That's a fabulous choice from Elvir. And I couldn't agree more. Monster is one of the more unique films I saw all year. I really enjoyed, I don't even know what to call it, from Hirokazu Kurita. And I struggled to define its genre because there's a lot in here for everyone. There's a conspiracy thriller. There's a mystery. There's a romance. There's a coming-of-age story. All of these genres exist within Monster in a very naturalistic and organic way. The script is from Yuji Sakamoto, who won the Best Screenplay Prize when this premiered at Cannes earlier this year. And it's really a script that subverts your expectations in every way. It's about shifting perspectives and who we believe when incidents occur. It, again, covers some really heavy topics, but it's always compelling. It's always engaging. It's the kind of film that I think the less I say about it, the better. 
you really want your experience with this film to be as untainted as possible because I was so surprised the directions this went in and what it kind of teaches you along the way. It features such a beautiful piano score from Ryuchi Sakamoto, he of Yellow Magic Orchestra, one of Japan's most accomplished musicians who sadly, tragically passed away this year. This is the last film score he ever composed. So see it for that, but see it for how it will inspire you, make you see others' perspectives, and most importantly, how it will engage and enthrall you because after all those heavy things I mentioned, it really is just a compelling feature. My number 17 favorite film is Kelly Reichardt's Showing Up. This is Reichardt's follow-up to First Cow. It is a movie about the pleasure and pain of making art. It stars Michelle Williams as a prickly Portland-based ceramicist named Lizzie. Lizzie's far more adept at communicating through her work than through her words, and she crafts these beautiful ceramic dancers that are full of color and life and vitality. And the irony is that these dancers express in a way that Lizzie isn't able to herself. Lizzie's beset by pretty mundane issues that anyone can relate to. Artistic rivalries, home maintenance problems, family issues. But what this film inspiringly says is that community, as exasperating as it can be, can also be a source of strength and hope and motivation. This has an incredible supporting cast, including Hong Chow, John Magaro, Judd Hirsch, and Andre 3000. And yes, he brings his flute. It's punctuated by these really inspiring interstitial scenes of everyday life at this art college where young people are creating and expressing and iterating. These moments really are beautiful and a reminder of what art can represent to people. So I highly recommend this film. It's stuck with me ever since I've seen it. Certainly one of the best films of the year. What's up, Shmir? This is Jake here coming at you with one of my favorite movies of 2023. Great year, but for me, one of the most fun movie experiences was the fourth installment in the John Wick universe with John Wick 4. This movie really does it all for a John Wick movie. The colors are amazing. The scenes are fantastic. And the, the characters larger than life. It's a bit in on the joke on this one, as they all are. And there's some pretty funny parts of him climbing up the stairs at Monmark and just consistently coming back down. And oh, I could rewatch this movie all year. Thanks for another great year of movie and TV recommendations and looking forward to what's to come in 2024. Thank you, Jake, for that excellent selection. John Wick 4 is my number 16 film of the year. I absolutely love this film. When you talk about it, you run the risk of just saying, remember the Sacre Coeur Steps or the Arc de Triomphe or the scene in the nightclub. That's just a testament to how inspired and poetic and imaginative all of these set pieces really are. By this point, Keanu Reeves has distilled John Wick into caricature in a very self-aware and hysterical way. All he manages to utter, it seems, is, yeah. And every time you hear it, it's as funny as the last time. But what his 
that distillation of character means elsewhere is that it provides room for pathos from other characters. Specifically, I'm thinking of Donnie Yen as Kane, a blind martial arts genius with a daughter to protect. Yen is so great as a supporting character here, bringing physical grace and surprising pathos to the role. I think I already love this film, but with a character like that, it elevates John Wick 4 to the next level. I can't wait to see what happens with John Wick 5 because it seems like Keanu Reeves and director Chad Stileski really have a kind of mind meld telepathy going that makes me feel certain that whatever they do next, they're going to be on the same level with each other and they're going to create something very inspired. Hello, Shmir Hunter. This is Maya Kamau coming to you live from Nairobi. My pick for this year is something that I actually saw at Telluride and have not been able to stop thinking about. Anatomy of a Fall. I'm a little partial to a courtroom drama and this one does not disappoint. It's meticulously crafted. Some of the best dialogue I've heard all year. Hands down a masterclass. We should count ourselves lucky to believe in the era of uh, Sandra Hewler. A big thanks to Mina. Anatomy of a Fall is my number 15 favorite film of the year. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this past year, and it's easy to see why. Justine Trier's film is a murder mystery, a courtroom drama, a dissection of the differences between different European countries and their cultures. Maybe most importantly, it's not just an anatomy of a fall, it's an anatomy of a marriage. Sandra Huller, who's having quite a year, plays Sandra, a woman on trial for potentially killing her husband. Huller is icy and inscrutable here in the best way, dare I say, in a Lydia Tarr-esque way. This is the kind of film that starts slow, but gradually wraps you in such a tight squeeze and will have you leaning forward in your seat to see what happens next. Not a single wasted moment in this film. And I think special accommodation should go to young Milo Machado Grainer, who plays Sandra's son, Daniel. He gives an incredibly wise and emotional performance and it's a perfect counterbalance to Huller's style. And I'd say it's one of the best young actor performances since Elliot in E.T. or Danny in The Shining. It is really that good. This is a film that feels like a perfect novel in the sense that there are many ways in and out of the story. And like I said, there are layers to peel back and analyze in a way that'll have everyone appreciating and finding truth and pain and intrigue in the story in different ways. And that is the mark of a successful film. What's up, Shmir Hunter? This is Lucas from Cusper Magazine. I'm going to go for a deep cut here. Probably my favorite surprise of the year were the Roald Dahl short stories by Wes Anderson. I'm going to put them all together and say they constitute a movie because I think it would be basically a full-length feature. I don't know. They, they did what I love about Wes Anderson more than I would say Asteroid City, 
which is at his best, he uses formal restrictions to really bring out a human layer underneath kind of societal structures. And I think pairing with Roald Dahl and these really tight stories that each one has kind of a top layer story and then a kind of underground story really just hit home for me in all of these themes that he's always working with, but that came out in these really pointed ways about colonialism and power and nostalgia and personal responsibility to the world. I just felt, and he created this sort of narrator in the story that I've never seen before, where the characters in the story are reading their own narration. And it just landed, and it was probably the best delight of the year for me. Thank you, Lucas, for that pick. The Roald Dahl short story adaptations by Wes Anderson are my number 14 favorite films of the year. I'm just going to group them all together because that's what has to happen. These are a series of short fables that together make an astounding statement on the importance of imagination and storytelling. There are great actors abound, including Benedict Cumberbatch and Rafe Fiennes, Rupert Friend, Dev Patel, Ben Kingsley, truly an A-plus ensemble that comes in and out of each story in a kind of repertory theater way that's really fun and playful. And I think what I love most about these movies is a theme and, and lesson they're trying to teach, which is that these films care more about what's absent from the frame than what's in the frame. And so characters will narrate and tell the story, but leave out visually what they're saying doesn't match up with what you're seeing. So it asks you to conjure these images the same way you'd read a book. And I think that's such a radical way of approaching film and adaptation by Wes Anderson that truly is remarkable and... I think that these kind of came and went because of their drop on Netflix, which reveals the strength and drawback of them being made for that streamer. Gotta hand it to Netflix for taking the risk and giving the money for Wes Anderson to make these. At the same time, the fact that these weren't better publicized when they came out is a true crime because they're amazing. Hey, Shmir. Joey here calling in from the Upper West Side. Just got to say, for 2023, the best movie of the year in my mind is the new Spider-Verse. I think it's so rare to get to watch a superhero movie that actually brings something new to the table. And it does so in, in such an effective way. It's got everything you want out of a fun, action-packed movie. It's got great character development, teen angst, uh, great visuals and a compelling storyline that that keeps you on the edge of your seat throughout. And I just had such a fun time watching this in theaters that it, it kind of brought me back to the joy of a combination of some of the best animated movies I've ever seen, but also some of the best superhero films. So for this year, I think this movie takes the cake for me. And when you add in just an incredible soundtrack, it really was just an, an absolute pleasure to watch. Thank you so much, Joey Piocker, for that great choice. Across the Spider-Verse comes in for me at number 13. It's exactly what you want out of a sequel. It takes the core tenets of the amazing first film and makes it bigger and more colorful, more villains, 
more boldness, more everything. It's exactly what you want from a sequel. Something that I really appreciate and respect about this film, and before you say that's a really weird thing to respect, whatever, this is me, is the classical serialization story structure and the cliffhanger. But what I mean by that is that this is really the Empire Strikes Back of the series. It doesn't end on a high note. It ends with our characters separated and maybe potentially in a worse situation than when they started the film and with greater obstacles to overcome, which I mentioned Empire Strikes Back. We consider Empire Strikes Back to be one of the best films ever, but we've gotten away from being brave enough to leave stories on cliffhangers. Today's audiences expect a level of resolution and immediacy that Across the Spider-Verse withholds. And I love that decision. I think it's going to have everyone so a tizzy for the last film of the trilogy beyond the Spider-Verse. The first film made $375 million. This film Across the Spider-Verse made $690 million. And my bet is that the third Beyond the Spider-Verse will hit a billion because with each film, this is drawing in a bigger and bigger audience that is realizing that this trilogy is one of the best trilogies, not just of superhero films, but of all time. Moving right along, but staying in the world of animation, my number 12 favorite film is The Boy and the Heron from Hayao Miyazaki, the octogenarian master filmmaker. This is expert level Miyazaki. If you have scaled the mountain and you've watched your Totoro's and Princess Mononoke's and Spirited Away's, this is the inspiring, existential, gorgeous, final boss vision waiting for you at the end. And this movie is transcendental and emotionally involving and bewitching. I remember when I saw this in the theater, someone behind me said, yeah, it was good, but that was weird. And yeah, it is weird. It's a fever dream. It doesn't hold your hand. It kind of launches you into a setting and a place and a time period and a fantastical world. I really don't want to spoil much because it's a perfect film to just be swept away by and surprised by. It certainly surprised me. But I will just say that Master Hayao Miyazaki is feverishly pouring his heart and his mind and his imagination into this film in that could be his final film. It feels deeply personal, but of course it is very magical too. It's got a variegated dreamlike sense of logic and play and connection that makes this a modern classic that I think will grow in estimation over time as people get to rewatch it. But I will just say, as a first-time watch, you may be a little confused. You may be a little perplexed. I think that's exactly the right feeling and one that will be demystified with every progressive watch. And that is certainly what The Boy and the Heron deserves. That was number 12. My number 11 favorite film of the year is a movie that I found really surprising for how funny and irreverent and self-reflexive it was. I have Eli Auerbach and Nate Bishop to introduce it as their favorite film of the year. Yo, Shamir. It's Eli from Cambridge. 
Thanks for all the content you made this year. It's been a lot of fun. Just wanted to give you a call quickly and compliment you on the blog post and everything and all the content. It's been a good year. Besides that, I watched The Killer, which was probably my favorite from your recommendations. Super violent, ton of blood and guts, a lot of fighting, a lot of explosions, action the whole time. But an interesting character who pretended like he was super logical and clear-cut. But the whole movie was about how he screwed up every time he felt emotions, which was kind of interesting, kind of fun. Anyways, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Looking forward to Schmear Hunter 2.0 in 2024. What up, what up, what up? Schmear Hunter. First time, not last time. Fan and caller of the Schmear cast. It's been a long year, and I feel like I don't really remember a lot of the movies that I watched this year. The Killer was just fucking David Fincher just making a meticulous hitman movie. No fucking bullshit, just, yeah, I kill people, like, and it's bullshit. (laughs) Just bullshit. So I really like that. It's always fucking highly stylized, and that fight scene... It's probably one of the best fight scenes I've ever seen in my life. And the sound design was insane. Anybody that did not get to see that in fucking theaters missed something crazy. David Fincher's The Killer comes in for me at number 11. I got a chance to see this in a theater before it came onto Netflix. And I'm really glad that I did. It was a very funny experience. I was sitting there with a packed house of mostly men, of course. This is the kind of movie that is pretty dark and thrilling, but everyone was wondering if they had permission to laugh. And I certainly was cackling in my seat, kind of worried that I was the sole sicko that thought that Contract Killer was hysterical. But slowly but surely, everyone started kind of cracking up and enjoying this film. It's about a contract killer who has a set of rules and code, but he can't stop fucking up. And Michael Fassbender plays said killer in quite a self-aware and knowing performance that I found really compelling and funny. And pretty quickly, if you know a little bit about David Fincher, you realize that the killer is semi-autobiographical because... Our killer is so pedantic, so meticulous, much like Fincher himself. But he realizes that when man plans, God laughs. And I'm certain that Fincher is aware of that truth from his many, many years of experience directing movies and his perfectionism. And so I think this is a really funny, weirdly charming movie about being at peace with your own nature and realizing that not everything can be micromanaged and controlled. And perhaps that spoke to me personally in some ways, but I found it very funny. All right, now we're getting into my top 10 favorite films of the year. And at number 10, I have Menus Placier, Les Gras. I apologize for my French pronunciation. This is an over four hour long documentary from master filmmaker Frederick Wiseman. 
Wiseman is 93 years old and still as curious as ever. Here we get a peek under the hood of a different institution, that of a three-star Michelin restaurant. The film is a gorgeous evocation of teamwork. It's about the beauty of rowing in the same direction with a shared goal of bringing supreme pleasure to a patron. And if you love food, you're going to find that really inspiring, not to mention mouthwateringly gorgeous with so many great shots of cooking and food and whatnot. This is punctuated by these beautiful scenes of cheese making and wine making and cattle grazing techniques that really show you the minutia that goes into putting on a three Michelin star experience. I loved all of that. In addition to being about food, this is a family story too. The restaurant, of course, is a type of family with the staff and the cooks all working together, but there is a family here, the Tragra, that are central to the story. It's an inspiring portrait of succession done right, as opposed to the bombastic Righteous Gemstones or Succession where everything seems so fraught. This is displaying a father really training and coaching his sons along as they get set to take over for him, which I found pretty cool to see. So this got snubbed for Best Documentary for next year's Oscars, which is a fucking travesty, but I highly recommend seeking this movie out. Moving on, my number nine favorite film is Jonathan Glazer's Holocaust psychodrama, The Zone of Interest. What a harrowing experience this was. This film is about Rudolf Hess, the real-life commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp. It's about him and his wife and their family and their day-to-day goings-on as they live and love and hang out with their children next to Auschwitz. So the dramatic irony there is devastating and evil and sickening. And it's exactly the kind of feeling Jonathan Glazer is trying to invoke. If Schindler's List is a master Holocaust movie because of what it shows, this is equally devastating because of what it hides. It asks you to open your ears and mind and eyes and imagination to this experience. By trying to lean in, you feel like it grabs you and pulls you into this tight, malevolent squeeze and doesn't let you go. Christian Friedel and Sandra Huller embody the Nazis and they act with such a disgusting, laissez-faire matter-of-factness that made me sick to my stomach, but I know it was the right acting decisions made by these performers. And I gotta shout out the unique camera work that Glazer employs. Glazer has five cameras set up within this house, and he's focus-pulling them from afar When characters enter rooms to act out their scenes, it gives the film a creepy surveillance camera dollhouse effect that it's deeply unnerving and uncanny, situating us in this scary valley between reality and artifice. And it's just one of the many reasons that makes the zone of interest unforgettably gripping and an especially challenging experience, but one I say 
do not miss. All right, we need to brighten the mood a little bit after that. And I have my mother here to recommend the next movie. Happy holidays, Schmear Hunters. It's the Schmear's mom. One of my favorite movies of the year is The Taste of Things. If you enjoy food and cooking, love stories, and 19th century France, you'll adore this film. Juliette Binoche is outstandingly beautiful as Eugenie. The Taste of Things is an unforgettable cinematic experience. Thanks, and go Schmear! Thank you, Mom, for giving birth to me and also for that recommendation. I could not agree more. Tran on Hung's The Taste of Things is a luscious, transportive romance that is sure to have everyone swooning. Set in the 1890s in France, Juliette Binoche and Benoit Majamel play a pair of chefs, and they're really partners in every sense of the word, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, in life itself. The look of the film is so inspired by the era's impressionism, like a Renoir or Degas painting come to life, all these images rendered more beautifully than you may have ever seen them before. The ASMR level sound design is mouthwatering and the cooking scenes obviously are a highlight. You can tell that I love food and love food in film, but this film really makes a strong case for the argument that the way to the heart is through the stomach. And maybe that's not what you believe and not your philosophy, but if you watch The Taste of Things and let it make its case to you, I think you'll agree that it makes a compelling point. That was my number eight favorite film of the year. Number seven is a film that I really like, but I'll let Ryan Michaels introduce it. A guy who has seen the movie countless times. Who better to talk about Oppenheimer than him? Hello, Gabriel. Love this idea for you. So I am the schmuck that has seen Oppenheimer eight times, <laughs> making it 24 hours total since July. And uh, every time I see it, it, it feels like a mental kind of pencil sharpener. It feels like something that movies have been kind of hovering around for a while, which is to try and find a way to kind of get right in the middle of the blockbuster and the art house, but to really kind of distill the prickly elements of both. In other words, it feels like a new kind of movie. I think there's really something to be said for the idea that, you know, the image is as analog as it could be, but the bass, the sound, like the the kind of the sound design of the movie, you may as well be in like a Berlin rave bunker. In other words, you're, you're somewhere tactile and physical, but you're also kind of way off in the digital Neverland. It's, it's kind of a paradoxical no man's land of a movie. Like, I, I love it. I fucking love it to death. And I'll, I'll keep watching it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, that's the one for me. Thank you, Ryan. It is inspiring and disturbing the amount of times you've seen this movie, but all the power to you. Oppenheimer comes in at number seven for me. I really liked this film when it came out in theaters in the hullabaloo of Barbenheimer. I was blown away by the editing and the filmmaking, the amount of young white male actors in the movie. I particularly liked 
the first 30 minutes where we kind of see the literalization of Oppenheimer's brain expanding. He's looking at Picasso's and reading T.S. Eliot, listening to Stravinsky. And these are really the hallmarks of modernism. And we're seeing the making of his mind. And I thought that was some of the most beautiful and experimental filmmaking, artistic filmmaking I've ever seen from Christopher Nolan. I loved that boldness and that vision. Of course, I love the lead up and the Trinity test. I think that it's very thrilling and quite impressive. But I did have beef with the third act after I saw this the first time. I didn't understand why we went away from Oppenheimer right after he drops the bomb. This is the moment I want to know his psychology and what he's thinking more than ever before. And now we're focusing on Louis Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character instead. Also, I have to say those female characters really suck in this movie. Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh are very talented actresses, and their roles are kind of embarrassing. I still think this. I'm sorry. I think they should have just been excised from the film. And if you can't write a female character, just leave it out. It's okay. There are many great movies to speak to the female experience. I don't think Christopher Nolan is doing that. But I will say, I rewatched this movie about a month ago. I thought it was maybe even better on the rewatch. I think that's especially because those Louis Strauss scenes make a lot more sense when you know the direction of the plot and where it's going and what it's trying to say with its fusion, fission, split. You can see the moments peppered through the movie where Strauss takes slight after slight, bump and nick after bump and nick, and how he kind of would be motivated to go against Oppenheimer. And so to map that out on the rewatch make a lot more sense for me. And I thought the film was even better. Of course, who am I to go against Christopher Nolan? His movies are, when you look up rewatchable in the dictionary, you find Christopher Nolan's movies. And so I think Oppenheimer will continue to grow in estimation because of how layered and how intelligent it is. Like Ryan said, I just love that this attempted to find that equilibrium between art house filmmaking and big blockbuster, like some of cinema's greatest films, like Lawrence of Arabia or 2001 A Space Odyssey or Amadeus. That is really impressive and so bold. And I have to hand it to Christopher Nolan for that. So Oppenheimer at number seven and Jake Silverman's here to introduce my number six favorite film of the year. Shmir, you're getting a two for one. This is Jake Silverman and his little sister. Ari. And I was going to room with Shmir's sister if I had gone to Michigan, but I didn't. So shout out. She feels entitled to leave a message for your year in review too and talk about her favorite film, which was what? Priscilla. Ari's was Priscilla. What did you like about it? Okay, people are going to say that it's Chugi because it's Sofia Coppola, and I know there's a lot of conversation around her because she makes really girly films. But I think <laughs> I think Priscilla was so good. Not only was I sitting in my chair the whole entire time with my toes curled because Jacob Elordi is a smoke show. Yeah, he's a toe curler. He's really hot. But she just does such a good job portraying girlhood and girly things like i'm just really interested in the production design and the costumes i think that really stood out 
aside from what's her name's performance what's her name kaylee yeah, Kaylee was so good. I was honestly shocked. They made her look so young. She passes a really young girl, which was kind of weird, but it was really impressive. Speaking of um, young girls and sex objects, that brings us to my favorite film of the year so far, which is Poor Things. It's a fucking insane movie. Way different for me texturally than all of Yorgos' other stuff, which I'm honestly mixed on. I like the favorite a lot, but I'm not like a lobster head. Did he make the lobster? Yeah, he made the lobster. I didn't like that. Mark Ruffalo is so funny in this movie. I mean, I wanted, Emma Stone is unbelievable, of course. Willem Dafoe is as weird as he's ever been. But Mark Ruffalo in this movie is so funny as this debonair shitbag who's just following literally a child sex doll around and whisking her away on this like twisted European Terry Gilliam fantasy. Everything about the movie was shocking to me. Surprisingly shocking to me. Honestly, I wasn't expecting to have my mouth open the whole film. I see a lot of weird shit, but that's an example of something truly out there warming its way into like mainstream with movie stars and being an actually accessible movie at the same time that a whole theater could be packed in and at the Grove at like seven o'clock on a Friday and be laughing their asses off. So Shout out to Poor Things. I think it's a way forward for movies. I also really like Priscilla. Yeah, it was so good. We still got a lot to watch this year, so... So many. I haven't change. seen a lot. I haven't seen Salt Burn. I haven't seen Mastro, which would be dog shit. Zone of Interest. Zone of Interest. See. Anyways. Willy Wonka, who up Wonka and they Willy. Who up Wonka and they Willy. Anyways, it's Jake and Ari. Look forward to more from you, Shamir. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We love you. Bye. Thank you, Jake and Ari, for those choices. Poor Things comes in at number six for me. I went into this movie really needing to be won over. I think that the hype machine for this was too big and too loud. And I heard how great Emma Stone's performance was and how beautiful and strange it looked and how funny it is, how great Tony McNamara's script was. And when you hear all of that going into something, you kind of want to go against the grain. So this movie really needed to win me over. And for the first first third of it, it wasn't succeeding. I think those scenes start slow as we see Bella's development. And it's funny, but it's also kind of frustrating. I think maybe that's the point. But around one third of the way in, this thing really takes off and comes into crystal clear focus as Bella's development continues. And Emma Stone, gotta hand it to her, she plays the full range and arc of a human being's life in one performance. I've never seen it before, dare I say only have seen it this past year in Barbie. And I love that these movies kind of speak to each other and have connections, and I think both can exist and succeed on their own merits. Poor Things has tons of merits. The costume design is stunning. The production design, some of the most beautiful production design I've ever seen, kind of reminded me of a Tim Burton film in the best ways where you just feel transported to something magical that you've never seen before. And that's what we're really looking for out of movies, I think. I love the score in this movie from Jerskin Fendricks, which is just the greatest name I've ever heard. His score is discordant and beautiful, but just slightly tonally out of touch and out of tune. And that makes perfect sense when you see the movie, because that really is the plot and feeling that Poor Things is trying to evoke. 
Not to mention the great supporting performances here from Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef. It's really a movie I look forward to revisiting to take in all of its spectacle and grandeur. And I loved it by the end. I felt moved. I was laughing. And I was surprisingly touched by this film. Poor Things comes in for me at number six. And now we're on to my number five favorite film of the year. My number five favorite film of the year is a Spanish film I saw over the summer that hasn't been able to leave me ever since. And that is Rodrigo Sorogoyen's The Beasts, otherwise known as As Bestas. Where to begin with this movie? It is a Western thriller about a French family that moves into the Galician countryside, which is part of Spain. And they're trying to fix up a house to rent it out as an Airbnb. They are completely beset on all sides by Spanish locals that are so xenophobic and violent and have so much malice against these foreigners that the only result that can occur is murder. I won't say by who, against who, or what, but it locks these two warring factions into a death spiral. It's not not a light film. It had me gripping my seat the entire time, but it is so memorable for the contemporary themes it's trying to tackle, like gentrification, xenophobia, and the environment and what we contribute to it or take from it. The location is hyper-specific, but the themes at play are universal. And this gives the beast a haunting relatability, whether you are Spanish or American or from anywhere else in the world. The star is Denis Minochet, who you may recognize as Monsieur Le Petit from that opening scene of Inglorious Bastards. He's a big, burly bear of a man, but he has a sweetness. I would compare him to like a Tony Soprano type. He really carries this movie. And then in the third act, this does something really strange and takes a bold narrative swing. And when I saw it, I was a little confused. I wasn't fully on board. And then I realized, shame on me, where this went in the third act takes this from a great thriller to the realm of transcendence. It is such a cool and smart choice that elevated this film to such a high level. So this comes in at number five for me. I really implore people to check this out if they missed it because it is very special, but be warned, it is an intense experience. That was my number five favorite film of the year. Number four, I will let two very smart fellas introduce. First, we have Jesse Aronson and then Will Iannacone to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. What's up, Schmier? This is Jesse Aronson here to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, the new movie by a little-known filmmaker named Martin Scorsese. Be on the lookout for him and any future projects he comes out with. I think this is far and away the best movie of the year for so many reasons. 
apart from the incredible performances by Leo, Robert De Niro, Lily Gladstone, and the entire other massive cast of characters that this movie has, I think that this is one of the greatest American stories ever told about the original sin of this country. And also, it is one of the single best adaptations I have ever seen from page to screen. David Grant's novel, which is an amazing novel, is quite procedural and tells the story of the birth of the FBI. And if you know anything about how this movie came to be, you might know that Marty and screenwriter Eric Roth originally were telling a pretty straightforward story of the FBI. But due to delays of COVID and production, they shifted the story to tell a much more personal story about the Osage as best as they could. And this movie is so massive. It wraps its arms around you and squeezes you for dear life. And you're gasping for air by the end. And it was so overwhelming on first view that I knew the second the credits rolled that I was going to go back and see it a second time. I can't wait to revisit parts of this on Apple TV at home. I think 80 years into his career, well, not 80 years into his career, but at the age of 80, Marty still has tricks up its sleeve. And there are a few moments in this movie that will stick with you forever. Thanks. Hey, Shmir. First time, long time. When you asked me to speak about Martin Scorsese's epic masterpiece, Killers of the Flower Moon, I thought, how could I condense all of my thoughts into one minute? But then I thought about how Mr. Scorsese had to condense all of his thoughts about our country's history into three hours. And I thought, well, my task isn't nearly as hard as his was, so let's do it. To that point, there is no movie this year that defined what it means to be American more than Killers of the Flower Moon. Scorsese weaves a dark tale of opportunity and tragedy, of love and loss, of conviction and deceit, and as the schemes become ever more brazen and complex, and as the number of victims grows, Scorsese looks on with horrified astonishment at this display of the American way, at what the ruthless will do if they are sure they're able to get away with it. And mind you, there's nothing more American than getting away with something. I can go on and on and on about the incredible performances of Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio and Bob De Niro and the rest of the cast. But the performance I'd like to focus on for a second is the brief one by the director, Martin Scorsese. The movie is about to end and he chooses to include a, clo- a coda, a radio drama produced by the FBI describing the crimes that were depicted for the last three and a half hours. But instead of Lily Gladstone's Molly being the hero in this tale, the minor character Tom White, played by Jesse Plemons, is the is. And the description of the all, by the all-white cast bears no resemblance to what we've just seen. Mr. Scorsese then steps onto the stage to tell the tale that the FBI didn't include in their radio play, that of the rest of Molly's life. He knows he's probably not the right person to have told this story, but he also knows that the story must be told. He knows he's doing a version of what the FBI had been doing, but he also hopes that this version is more empathetic to the truth, no matter how dark and complex it really was. If you can understand that, and if you can understand this movie, then you can understand the myth that is the United States of America. Thank you so much, Jesse and Box Office Bill, for that pick. Killers of the Flower Moon comes in at number four for me. It's a stunning piece of adaptation, like Jesse said. I read the David Grand nonfiction that Martin Scorsese's film is based off of, and it's an amazing book. But what the movie chooses to do early is dispense with the mystery of who the villain is. It's revealed to us so early that Robert De Niro's character is the perpetrator of these murders of the Osage. And I think that's a bold decision that gives the film a very tragic and ironic feeling. 
It's like we're watching a slow motion car crash. We know who the bad guys are. We want to reach out through the screen and grab them and shake them. We want to tell the Osage, open your eyes, look who's doing this to you. And we cannot. And that is the exact feeling that Scorsese is trying to invoke. It's a sense of complicity that is powerful and upsetting and deeply moving that helps take this movie to the next level and unlock something new that the book does not. I have to shout out the three lead performances here because they are movie star level and they take the film to the next plane of mystery and perfection. And that is Lily Gladstone, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro whether it's what's inside them that they put on the screen or how Scorsese directs them or a combination of the two. It shows the power and importance of casting great performers. I am a little hesitant to revisit this film because of how dark and upsetting it is, but I know that that's the exact right feeling that should be felt when you watch Killers of the Flower Moon. Scorsese is known for crafting such beautiful and romantic scenes and montages that are violent and they're set to beautiful pop scores and songs like Layla and there's none of that here. It's just a nasty, dirty Robbie Robertson score and a sense of staccato, blunt, ugly violence that sometimes is even comedic in how matter of fact it is. And I think that that's, again, the right choice. It represents that these villains should not be glamorized. They really went about their business in such a dirty, ugly way. These villains are purely motivated by greed and a capitalistic push. And that is what Marty is saying about the founding of this nation and some of its original sins, like Jesse mentioned. So I think this film it's kind of a masterpiece. It's one that I warmed up to over time, and I am very excited to revisit it, even if I know it's one of the toughest, most dark films of the year. That was my number four favorite film of the year. My number three favorite film of the year is Todd Haynes's May, December. I saw this back at the Hamptons Film Festival, and I was downright giddy with excitement after seeing it and during. And I was especially enjoying the fact that the audience, which was a little elderly, I'll say, was so perplexed and put off and disgusted by the film, which just made me love it even more. This is a psychosexual drama in the vein of Ingmar Bergman's Persona or Mulholland Drive, two of my favorite movies. And when I saw what this film was going for, I knew that it was right for me, Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman star. And they are so bewitching together. I think Natalie Portman's performance, which is breathy and put on and kind of fraudulent is so fantastic like a noir vixen from the 50s or 40s and then julianne moore's performance is a little stranger she has that lisp of course 
but she's just an iceberg with so much under the surface that really never gets explained, but you know it's there, you feel it. And then, of course, Charles Melton, who starred in Riverdale and really comes to bat and holds his own against these world-class performers with a great supporting turn. I love what Todd Haynes does to this script. I think the script is already ingenious by Sammy Birch, who was a casting director. Who She has such a great sense of performers and performance and puts all of that on the page. But then what Todd Haynes unlocks is a Hitchcockian flair that is so exciting and campy and melodramatic. The score is unforgettable. Those piano sounds that are way over the top and take this to the next level. I think it's supposed to be shot a little bland, kind of like a Lifetime movie, but then shot through with world-class performers, direction, writing. And so that creates a funny in-between feeling where the material is lurid and nasty, but then the execution is at an A-plus Oscar level. And that creates such a funny feeling that you have when you watch this film that I reveled in. And let's be clear, the movie is very tragic and sad and dark and strange, but it's also strangely joyous in how it goes about all this, creating, like I said, that bizarre feeling that is so special, making May-December by far one of my favorite films of the year and a film that really gets even better upon rewatches as new layers get unpeeled and unpacked. And now a reader call in to introduce my number two favorite film of the year. Hey, Shmir, Senna J calling in. Big fan of you, Shmir, and, and, and new fan of the pod and definitely going to be a long fan of the pod. But Asteroid City is the movie that I wanted to call in about because it is so special to me and it's in my top for the entire litany of incredible movies we've had. And I think that people that have been putting it so low on their list don't really understand what Wes Anderson's trying to get at. I think that the best part of the movie is how the dialogue each and every movie he's made has come across. He has been refining that element of dialogue to the point where it speaks to you so directly at any stage of your life. And it reminds you of things that you might have forgotten in ways that don't have any contempt or any frills. And, and there's a quote specifically I want to talk about that Tom Hanks, by Stanley Zach says, and he says, in my loneliness and perhaps because of it, I've learned not to judge people, to take people as I find them, not as others find them. And most of all, to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. And that is such a, and it may feel, you know, a little bit, you know, woo woo and a little bit, as if it's a platitude, but in, in, in the grand scheme of all of his film work, that direct quote resonates through every single character. And I think definitely reminds of the things that we may have forgotten in terms of what seeking connection from other people is about and how important it is that despite the grief and the loneliness and any hurt that we feeling that, that, that it's, it's still worth it to seek that connection. I think that it's, it's one of the best parts of the movie. I love it. Thank you so much. Senna asteroid city is my number two favorite film of the year. This came out in the late spring and kind of came and went, but I think that's a horrible mistake. This movie is so moving and deeply felt and personal, and I think it's a slice of perfection that I 
was not expecting, but was very happy to receive. The first time I saw this film, I felt deeply moved by Wes Anderson's story and his characters. It does have a dual narrative that could confuse a little bit. And when I've heard criticism of this movie, I've heard people say that they like one aspect of the narrative, but not the other. And to that, I say, well, I'm sorry. He saw the need to tell it in this way so that we have the action happening in Asteroid City. And then we have the play and its actors that are putting on Asteroid City. I think it works. I think if you have a little patience, it is a bold and beautiful choice that plays even better on rewatches. Certainly, I loved this film when I got to see it again. You can really check in on all of that bit of detail and all of the characters you're kind of trying to wrangle the first time around. Here, they're just a gorgeous ensemble that is fun to hang out with. This has great performances from Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman, Tom Hanks, Tilda Swinton. All of the Wes Anderson favorites pop up here, and he is so adept at utilizing them in exactly the kind of way that they should be used. The production design is stunning. All pinks and yellows and light blues that really put you in a time and place of artifice, but also of reality and imagination. And similar to what I mentioned about Wes Anderson's Raw Doll shorts, this asks of you a lot. You have to commit yourself to the story and the filmmaking. And that makes this a really immersive, involving experience that I found really inspiring. I think the themes here are really unique. Though this is set in the 1950s, it's really a movie for the present touches on the clash between science and art and potentially the idea that both can not only coexist, but they need each other in the pursuit of creativity. But there's even more here, the military industrial complex, lockdowns, parents and children, death and life. I think this is Wes Anderson at his most moving and personal and I've always been a fan of his, but not since Royal Tenenbaums has a film of his really hit that sweet spot between the aesthetic brilliance and the personal brilliance. And I think Asteroid City nails it. I love this movie. I find so much meaning and joy and feeling within it. And maybe it's a personal pick here, but these are my rankings. And I got to say, Asteroid City speaks to me more than most movies this entire year. We are at my number one favorite film of the year, and I have two Collins to recommend it as well. Let's listen to those. Hey, Shamir Hunter, this is Calvin Reed. I am calling in about the film Barbie, the highest grossing movie of the year. And also, I think, one of the true great blockbuster action comedies of the 21st century. I think the film is a pretty incredible satirization of a well-known IP while also expressing the love and adoration for that IP. The entire team from Greta Gerwig to Ryan Gosling 
Margot Robbie production design really put their entire love for the dolls into the movie and made it feel larger than life. And just as a personal note, one of my favorite songs of all time is Closer to Fine by the Indigo Girls. So it was cool to see Greta Gerwig give me some validation for that being an absolute banger of a song by using it in the film. Hi, Schmier Hunter. This is Simin, originally from Germany, but living in Los Angeles. Thanks for providing us with such a great newsletter. I really love all your writing and love to hear all the recommendations you have. I thought 2023 was a great year for movies, surprisingly, with a strike and everything going on. I, Looking at your best of 2023 list, I really thought we had some really good stuff in 2023 and my favorite movie this year has to be Barbie. I don't think there is another movie in the world that combines such a meaningful topic with such great acting, a really fun soundtrack and a really great looking movie. Uh, I was so happy that it was just such a big hit while also making such a great statement for all the women in this world, being brutally honest about what our world's is like and what maybe we should or should try to change. I think Greta Gerwig is really great. Whenever I see lists about who's the best director in the world, I always see these middle-aged men <laughs> listed and there's never a single woman. So I also really like to support for more women in leading roles or as directors in the film industry. So I'm really proud of Greta Gavik as a woman for making such a big successful movie that was just a blast to watch. And I think I've rewatched it four times by now. Yeah, I watched it with my friends in LA and in Germany and with my family. And the only concern my female family members or friends have as they say um, men will have difficulties to understand the depth it goes to about womanhood and what it's what it feels like to be a woman in society so I'm really curious and happy to hear more about what you have to say about this movie as a male and <laughs> I'm happy to see it on your list all the way on in the top Thank you so much, Samin and Kelvin. I have little to add on top of it, but I'll try my best. Barbie is my number one favorite film of the year. And as I whittled down my list, it held on to the pole position. I think that speaks to really its supreme creativity and boldness. Greta Gerwig found something, unlocked something at that intersection between commerciality and artistry. And I think often that goes the wrong way, tips into commerciality with negative effects. But within that tension, she found something playful and imaginative and exuberant and exciting. And there's a reason this film was such a phenomenon. It isn't just the marketing. It wasn't just the pink. It was all a testament to the exciting nature of this film. I am kind of obsessed with Margot Robbie's performance as Barbie. I think it is oddly overlooked in a way. She is so graceful and perfect and preternatural in the role that we almost take it for granted. I don't know any performer who could pull that off. 
I guess Emma Stone kind of did in Poor Things, which is another great performance. But I have to give the tip of the cap to Robbie as Barbie. And we're never going to think of Barbie as any other actress again in the same way. That's how unique and perfect and one of a kind this performance is. And then we can get into the rest of it. Ryan Gosling is unforgettable as Ken. Those songs and that soundtrack shot up the charts by not just being catchy, but actually making sense to the story and the narrative. The production design is iconic with a certain plasticity that feels like Barbie sets come to life, which, again, I just think this movie makes everything look so easy that you wonder why can't every big budget film be this inspired, this thoughtful and look this good. And it's hard. Barbie makes that look easy. That is a real feat that should be commended. I think this film is eminently entertaining and rewatchable, something new to find and laugh at, or a corner of the screen to look at with each repeat viewing. And the meaning is powerful. I love that in such a big budget vehicle, so many ideas were brought in. I have to credit Gerwig, of course, with that, and Noah Baumbach, her now husband and co-writer. They really hit this one out of the park. I think in decades, we'll look back on this film as not just one of the best films of the year, but one of the best of the century, something that's just going to grow in stature over time. And I really look forward to what Gerwig does next. I understand it to be Chronicles of Narnia, whatever. When Barbie 2 comes, because it will come, she has my full vote of confidence. I expect her and her cast and her production team to bring the same level of creativity and imagination and intellectual rigor that she brought to this first film. And I can't wait for that moment when that comes. That makes Barbie my number one film of the year in what was a great year for film. I'm highly looking forward to 2024. All right, if you're still here, I want to thank all of you so much for listening, for reading The Schmear Hunter, for supporting what I'm trying to do and what this is all about. I hope it has been helpful to you in the past year, helping you find new shows and movies to watch. I certainly enjoyed writing and watching and recommending to all of you. So I hope this friendship, relationship, whatever can continue into 2024, where we'll have more podcasting, more writing, more recommendations, all of it more, better, good old stuff. I want to thank everyone that participated on this podcast and sent in their favorite films of the year. That means a lot to me. I am happy to get your opinions and takes out there as well. And I want to thank my producer, Pablo Melnick, for putting together this great episode. We'll see you soon with episode two, three, and on and on. And I hope you'll be along for the ride. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.